Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Commercial Free Summertime. I love doing this podcast for two reasons. The first is that we get to have a conversation, you, me, and a guest, the three of us, uninterrupted, without an ad for a mattress or a meal kit prep, right in the center of the conversation. I absolutely hate that when I'm listening to podcasts like, find a better way to do ads or don't do them at all. The other thing I love about this podcast is that every episode is baked full of tools, tips, and resources. So my team has committed to creating a weekly PDF that you can download at my website. Just go right to the episode at laurierudeman.com forward slash podcast. Go to the show, put in your email address. I will not sell it. And you will have all the tools, tips, and resources right at your fingertips in a beautiful PDF. This week's episode is totally worth it. I'm speaking to Victorio Milian. Some people call him the most disruptive man in human resources. Is that hyperbole? Is that true? Well, I don't know. You tell me. On the surface, Victorio, who is a dear friend of mine, is a human resources consultant, a father, a husband, a volunteer. I mean, he's got a normal life. He does photography for a hobby. But Victorio is the founder of a movement called Fix It, SHRM. What is SHRM? It's the Society of Human Resource Management. Why does it need to be fixed? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Victoria believes in ethical leadership, and he very simply believes that SHRM is not led by someone who shares his values. And so I will let you decide whether or not Victoria is right or wrong, but it's definitely a conversation that's worth listening to and worth having. When an association that represents you starts to behave in a way that you don't agree with, what do you do? Do you stay with it? Do you leave it? What happens when you try to reach out to the leadership and they don't respond? What happens if you're just told, too bad, this is how things are, and you're either on the bus or you're not on the bus? What do you do? Victorio made his choice, and I hope you listen, and I hope you make a decision too. If you're interested in a conversation about ethical leadership, well, sit tight and I'll be right back with more Victoria Milian and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Victoria, welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hi, Lori. How are you? Great, great. We're here in New York City together. It's so fun. I know. Welcome to my town. Thank you. Thank you. You brought your camera at my request and you've been snapping photos of me today. Before we get started, you're a man of many skills. You work in human resources. You have a passion for photography, for your family, for social justice. I can't do justice to your story. So why don't you tell us who you are and what you do for a living? My name is Victoria Milian. My pronouns are he and him. And I have three main jobs outside of being a father, husband, community member, so on and so forth. My primary job is a HR consultant for a company called Humoriso based out of the South Jersey, Philly area. I am their New York rep. 
And that's my nine to five, so to speak. Aside from that, like you mentioned, I have a passion for photography. So I'm developing my skill set and also my business acumen as it relates to images and photo essays in particular, really kind of telling the story of New York City that maybe people from outside of the city don't necessarily know about. So that's kind of where a lot of my focus lies as it relates to photography. And then third is I produce writing content. So I partner with a couple of agencies, but also independently to produce blog posts and do ghostwriting primarily. I love it. You are a man of many skills and many talents. I heard someone refer to you as the most disruptive man in human resources. (laughs) (laughs) And clearly you sound like it, you know. Oh, oh, absolutely. Who is that person? I want to pay them right now. Oh, my goodness. So tell us, why do you think someone would describe you as disruptive in the world of human resources? Wow. I don't know. Honestly, I would really like to talk to that person and see what they see, because a lot of what I do is really based on being curious, I would say. I got into human resources because I wanted to figure out how to hire and retain people that I wanted to be around all day long. You know, if you work 40 plus hours a week, you want to surround yourself with good people. So that led to my time in HR as it relates to photography. Again, I'm curious around the world around me, what images say or don't say, who they represent, who they don't. So that's where a lot of my passion lies as it relates to producing and disseminating images and content writing. I've always been a good writer. That's always been a core strength of mine. And so when people want to pay me for that, I'm more than happy to take their money and do that. And hopefully through that writing, shine a light on their particular strengths or subject areas that maybe, again, people aren't necessarily thinking about, but I hope to make them curious about as well. You know, curiosity challenges the status quo. And I think when you challenge the status quo, you get known as being disruptive. I know that's true, at least in my own life. Whenever you say no to something or yes to something, it changes the atmosphere in a room or a community and people get their feathers ruffled. And certainly you have ruffled a few feathers in the world of human resources because you are passionate about ethical leadership. I thought I'd stop there and ask you, do you have a definition of ethical leadership? What is it and why does it matter? I wouldn't say I have a hard and fast definition. Oh, you've got the Supreme Court definition, do you? (laughs) Well, you know, it's ever-changing. I think ethical leadership, much like HR, is contextual. And so in HR, we like to say it depends, right? There is no black and white situation most of the time where we can say that is a definitive answer one way or the other. And so with regards to ethical leadership, for me at this moment, it means really thinking through the moral implications of a business decision beyond the dollars and the cents. And when I was growing up as a kid, one of the things that kind of emerged in terms of corporate social responsibility was environmental impact, right? Companies for a long time did not care about environmental impact, but through activism, government regulation, and good journalism, amongst other things, companies recognized that the blowback from not taking care of the environment or paying lip service to environmental concerns as it relates to the harm their products may do was important. It needed to be addressed. And now it's commonplace for organizations to take that into consideration. I think right now we're at another big shift as it relates to ethical leadership in the workplace. I would say in areas such as diversity and inclusion, it's been decades since the Civil Rights Act, for one, and when diversity and inclusion kind of as a discipline in corporate America came on board and we're still struggling. And there's really no reason why at this point 
most major companies should be struggling, in my opinion, around diversity and inclusion and equity. Yeah. We don't struggle at doing a monthly P&L. We don't struggle at implementing time and attendance software. We don't struggle with writing an employee handbook. Why do we struggle with like assessing talent and creating diverse talent pools? Do you have an answer for that? No. Uh, <laughs> Shocking. You don't yeah, have an yeah, exactly. answer or a solution. Yeah. Because if I did, boy, would I be getting paid. Yeah. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, yeah, that's true. people who do good things in the world very rarely get right. paid for it. Well, I think that there's a lot of different reasons for why companies are struggling in this area. I think a lot of it is because they don't care. To your point, as long as the profit is there, as long as they're able to keep the doors open as a business, diversity as a business strategy becomes less important. Google, for example, huge company, some of the smartest minds on earth work there. They have the resources, the money, and the ability to make this a business objective. And yet you see the diversity report and it's like, eh, maybe you move yeah. the needle by point some odd percent, but probably not. And if they're struggling with that, I think it's because at the end of the day, they're still making money and it becomes less of a priority for them. So it needs to be a moral imperative is what I'm saying around ethical leadership. At a certain point, the money does not make a difference. You should be doing something because it's the right thing. You know, that question around what is the right thing as if the right thing is absolute. And one would think it would be. But in our society, right, we've got two sets of facts. We have fake news and real news. Everybody is on the spectrum of reality at this point. One of the things that used to give me comfort when I worked in human resources is the saying that leadership begins at the top and the buck has to stop there. And then I actually got into a position of power and went, oh, man, (laughs) (laughs) leaders are no different than anybody else who are selfish and, you know, concerned about themselves and have an ego. I now believe that leadership begins with us, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it starts at the local level. But that's a challenge as well, because we are only as big as our individual platforms, right? We only affect as many people as we can. So what I'm saying is this answer of how to affect change in the world is not easy. And I wonder how you avoid getting cynical, because I'm pretty cynical about the world of work. And I think you're a little bit more optimistic than I am. Uh, I have my good days and my not so good days. I think overall, it helps to have a community. If you are kind of that lone voice in the dark, eventually you're going to succumb to depression or just really dark thoughts or or behaviors that don't suit the mission that you're trying to push forward. So I think that really helps in my case to know that I have other people that really challenge me when appropriate, which is good. I don't want to just have blanket assumptions about what I may or may not think is the right thing to do. But people at the end of the day say, Victoria, we got your back. And beyond that, just consistently looking to be educated around a subject and continue to speak as clearly and as often around a subject I'm passionate about really helps. So one thing I know you're passionate about is the current leadership at an association called SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management. Now, this is an association based in Washington, D.C. that says it has 300,000 members. I mean, who knows how many members they have? You know, that's not really public knowledge, but they've got a lot of members. And they're led by an individual by the name of Johnny Taylor, and he is their president and CEO. So Johnny Taylor is leading this association that is normally a nonpartisan advocacy group for the world of human resources. And they do things like get involved in legislation. They may have a point of view on like minimum wage. But more and more, they've, in my opinion, become a little bit more political. And for me, I've had some issues around the organization and their alignment with the Trump administration. 
So this is a lot of words coming out of my mouth. Why don't you tell me how you feel about SHRM? Well, first of all, I want to just make it clear that I haven't been a SHRM member for a while. I let my membership lapse several years ago. Wait, wait. Do you think that matters? I start off with that because that tends to be the first question that people ask when I start to complain about SHRM. (laughs) So I always position myself like that. Wait, wait. I complain about the traffic system Uh in Raleigh and Durham where I live, and I'm not always driving in it, but I'm always complaining about it because I know it sucks. So I'm just going to put that out there as like the counterpoint to all of that. But anyway, please proceed. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's okay. Everybody's different, but I always like to say, yeah, I'm not a member, but I've got opinions. So as it relates to the current administration at SHRM, it started last year with a handshake. You know, there was a photo op at the White House where current CEO of SHRM shook the hands of the current president of the United States because he joined a council for workforce development. And, you know, on its face, the idea of this council isn't a bad one. How can we make work better, right? And Mm -hmm. SHRM is in a position to offer guidance and opinions about that and mobilize their base to make an initiative like that work. But it's the person that you're aligning with around that. For lack of a better phrase, the current president is a cartoon villain. There is just so many things I could list off that makes him problematic at least and downright awful at worst. And so for Sherm to align with this person as explicitly as they had and continues to align themselves around, I believe really is a smack in the face considering this is an organization that has a very strong code of ethics that is listed on their website that they expect us as HR professionals to adhere to. So there's definitely a disconnect between what is being said from the organization around how they value employers, employees, and anybody in the world of work, and they want to give opportunities to people to be their best selves at work, but you are working with an administration that does not represent that in any way, shape, or form. And so I'm going to continue to speak my mind around that. Well, a lot of people would hear what you have to say and say, you know what, that's not unreasonable to think that Donald Trump behaves one way. And if he were an employee of a Fortune 500 company, he would get fired. So it is problematic to have him as our leader. But many people would say you have to have a seat at the table in Washington in order to affect change. And if you take yourself out of the conversation, you don't do justice for the world of human resources or the world of work. What do you say to that? I would disagree with that. First, I would push back about anybody saying this is just an issue with the current U.S. president. He is part of an administration and the administration has co-signed onto his agenda. So when we focus on him as an individual, I think we lose sight of that. So I think that's important, right? I'm not railing against an individual. I'm railing against the system that they represent and uphold. Same as with the current CEO of Sherm. I'm less interested in him as an individual and the fact that he is the leader of an organization that is now doing things that don't represent the profession's best interests. The second component of that is that the whole seat at the table argument is, oof, 
easily two decades old, maybe even longer. Well, it's it's older for HR professionals in a room of business executives. But uh, now we're going a step further and saying, if we want to make a change in Washington and affect mm-hmm. policy, we can't just close the door on those policy meetings. Right. We have to be there. We have to be in the room when Ivanka is trying to lobby her dad to behave a certain way. So do you not think that's true? Do we not need to be there when decisions are being made in Washington? I absolutely believe that Sherm has a place as it relates to advocacy in Washington and any legislative arena. The way in which you advocate does not have to take this form where you are literally shaking hands with somebody that is putting kids in cages. Their longstanding tradition is to go to Congress and represent their opinion about whatever legislation is up for grabs as it relates to what we do in human resources. That can still continue. It does not have to be explicitly tied to a particular administration. It could be, quote unquote, business as usual. And again, an agency with 300,000 members, if you mobilize them appropriately, now has a voice that is strong enough to demand a seat at the table in a way where if we just rely on a particular good-looking face, such as the current CEO, to do for us, again, does us a disservice as individual practitioners, and it does us a disservice in terms of working with this administration. The other piece is that with some of the initiatives that Sherm has brought forward, Again, they don't even need the administration at all. The whole thing about the one that they're currently doing where they are trying to give formerly incarcerated individuals a second chance to gain employment, wonderful initiative on its face. They do not need the administration at all to carry that out and to move it forward, let alone partnering with the Koch brothers who are problematic in a number of other different ways. Again, you have 300,000 members. I'm sure a good percentage of them are already working with formerly incarcerated individuals. Why not highlight them? Highlight the work that they're doing, the ways in which they're coming up with creative processes and procedures to get people within their community or out of their community back into the job market and getting them back on track with getting their lives back and being gainfully employed and legally employed. I mean, I've done it in my capacity as an HR consultant in a number of different positions I've held. I know a number of individuals that have done similar work. And of course, legislatively speaking, we're also moving in that direction anyway. So again, you don't have to shake the hands of a racist in order to get those things done. So this leads me to the bigger, broader question, because many members of SHRM and people who are not members are agitated at these public moments when SHRM publicly aligns itself with the administration. So is it the visible alignment? Is it the overall philosophical alignment of we're going to play ball with the Trump administration to move the HR industry forward? Why is this battle so important? Why now? And, And why is it so important to you? Well, for me, it started with the photo, for sure. But then as I read more about who this current CEO is and kind of how he operates, this is not new for him. And so... Wait, wait, can you tell me more about that? And so back when he was in charge of Thurgood Marshall Fund for historically black colleges and universities, he already had a partnership with the Koch brothers and they donated roughly $20 million to that fund. He talks about the fact that he fundraised for Hillary Clinton back during her election. So this is somebody that is used to being in the political arena and directly working with people in a position of power, which on the one hand, great. You know, that's a good skill to have if you're trying to move the needle in terms of what you want to accomplish. But again, as it relates to specifically this administration, what's your gain from that? Is it worth the cost of disillusioning so many 
practitioners that see you shaking the hands of this particular individual working so closely with this administration and refuse to have a conversation around that alliance. Again, I'm not a member of SHRM, so I have no direct access to leadership within the organization. And that's another reason why I I usually mention it. But a number of current SHRM members have tried to speak up either on the local level, the state level, even on the national level. And they're met with all forms of resistance from just flat out silence to, in some cases, blacklisting as it relates to opportunities to do, say, speaking or going to events. And people have quit as a result of that. Those are all the different concerns that are coming to the fore in that there's the photo opportunities that, again, just kind of irritate people. And then there's the underlying issues as it relates to those photo opportunities and how they're occurring. And again, it does not speak to who we could be as an organization and be representatives of truly strong ethical leadership within an organization. As you were talking, one of the words that kind of floated in front of me was that it's one patriarchal system that is SHRM being led by the male in charge, the dad in charge, who's going to talk to the patriarchal system run by Donald Trump. And the two are going to figure it out. They're going to figure out work. They're going to figure out human resources. They're going to figure out the economy. They're going to do it all together. And it made me hearken back to that comment that you made about people in the trenches who are already doing the work. And I think that's a lovely point that's not made enough. Like you don't need a CEO, you don't need a president necessarily to advance an agenda forward if you have a groundswell of active members who are already doing that work in the first place. I guess my question is, are HR professionals really that engaged? Are they really doing good work in the field? Because there's quite a bit of criticism around how HR has not fixed work up until this point. So maybe Johnny Taylor is the guy that we need to move the industry forward. So to answer your question, it depends. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're going to call this episode, It Depends. Exactly. (laughs) I think much like any position There's a wide range of effectiveness as it relates to HR practitioners. Some people are are doing amazing work in their field. Some of them are just, you know, there to collect the paycheck and make sure that they don't get sued. But I don't think that's much different from the CEO, the CFO, any number of individuals that are responsible for, you know, the operations of an organization. The thing that I think separates us from other uh, members of an organization is that we have poor PR. Oh, that's interesting. I think we don't do enough to really highlight the good that we do. I think we confuse confidentiality with being silent. Yes, if we are faced with a confidential situation, absolutely, we can't talk to people about that. But there's nothing to say that we don't kick butt and take names on a regular basis. And we should be uh, talking about that constantly. So some would say Johnny Taylor is talking about that constantly. He's up on TV. He's out in the news. He's talking about what the world of work is like with active and engaged HR professionals. Is there no room for somebody to take the realm, to claim the throne and say, I'm the king of human resources. To me, that's what it looks like Johnny Taylor is trying to do, right? Move the conversation forward, not necessarily in a positive way, but just in a way. If it's not Johnny Taylor, could it be somebody else? I think, again, being the leader of that large of an organization, there is definitely a place for a person that can push the HR profession forward, both in terms of highlighting individuals and groups that are doing good work and then also holding 
us accountable so we can all do better as a result. And that's where the ethical leadership part comes into play because in my opinion, Johnny Taylor is charismatic. He knows how to play to an audience, but I don't think he's doing it for the benefit of HR professionals. I think he's doing it as a career step, but that's just my particular opinion. I think he's saying all the right things because he recognizes that's his current role and he's smart enough to do that. But I don't think he has a deep-seated passion for helping individual HR practitioners be the best that they can be, which is why, again, most of the time when you see him out there, he is with image makers, Ivanka, Trump, other individuals to really highlight who he has access to, not necessarily who can help support HR professionals more broadly. And also the fact of the matter is if he can't talk to HR practitioners about their very legitimate concerns, then he really does not represent us to our best abilities. You work in human resources. I used to work in human resources, so I'm going to pretend like I still have some expertise here. You know, why not? I'm just going to play like I do. Back in the day when one individual had a complaint against someone else, we would try to promote a dialogue. We would try to understand one another's perspective, one another's points of view. We would give the person the benefit of the doubt. We would assume good intent and we would really seek to understand what's going on here. What is the root cause of the conflict and how can we move forward? Has this happened between you and Sherm? Have you tried to express yourself in a way that's productive and helpful? Have they responded? Have you tried to have a dialogue or are we beyond that at this point? As it relates to this particular CEO, I've gone through whatever official channels are available to me as a non-member. So I have written them a letter, sent it to their general email account. I got a boilerplate response back, which is not surprising. I know others have done more work in terms of trying to make their voices heard. So for example, people have written actual letters to the board, each individual board member, as well as the CEO. I know chapter leaders who made it a point of saying when Johnny Taylor comes to their event, they want to have a conversation with him. But the way he designs those meetings is he comes in, he says what he has to say, he gets his base fired up, which is appropriate in certain respects, but then he leaves. Yeah, because I was going to mention he does do quite a few speaking engagements across the landscape of America, right? You hear he's at Sherm, South Dakota and Sherm, Illinois or Illinois Sherm, whatever they're called, right? And so he's around, but you don't think it's part of a listening tour? No, absolutely not. He tends to position himself as the keynote of these events. So he comes in and again, he does his part and then he leaves. The interactions, from what I've seen from the outside, have been little to none. And again, when people have made it known to me that they are going to approach him if possible, those opportunities never come up. So I think he's being very careful around kind of shielding himself from people wanting to have a conversation with him about some of these not so comfortable topics. So you've hit the end of the road with your ability to affect change within SHRM, right? You've reached out, you've tried, you've made an effort, you've talked to people who have tried to take up the mantle and further the conversation that's not going forward. So what should you and other HR professionals think and do in this era of racism, in this era of misogyny, in this era of total and complete xenophobia, of this era of locking kids in cages? How should we be as an HR profession? Because in many ways, We're complicit. We provide HR to the security companies that are employing private security guards to lock children 
away at the border. Mm -hmm. We are overseeing systems where men are still allowed to violate the rights of women. People in the LGBTQ plus community are being bullied. HR can only think and do so much, right? So what is our role? What is our responsibility? If we're not going to get relief and leadership from SHRM, what do we do? Where do we go? That's a good question. I would say do what you can. There's a lot happening in the world. And if you try to think about it all and impact it all, you're going to freeze. But everybody can do something. And not everybody can do the same thing. And so... I know for myself, speaking out and being consistent around how I speak out, what I say, who my audience is, is my way of trying to move the needle. For other people, it may be something different. Maybe they look at their organization and say, you know what, we have a problem as it relates to diversity and hiring. So we have to dig deep in terms of how we do better around that. And of course, that means really getting uncomfortable, but really having the ability to push forward and tackle that and see it to its conclusion and recognize that there's never going to be a definitive moment where I say, oh, we got that fixed, right? Diversity, check done. It's an ongoing process. And so you have to adapt to the fact that once you've achieved maybe a particular milestone, there's a new milestone you have to think about, put into practice, and then move forward around. So for everybody, that's going to be a little bit different. But the other piece of that is work in conjunction with other like-minded individuals. Trying to do it by yourself is going to burn you out. It's going to make you cynical, beyond repair sometimes. And so working with other like-minded individuals, whether in your organization or outside of your organization, helps to spread the wealth. It helps to share the load. And you also multiply the effects, which is something that I'm still working through. Sometimes I like to think of myself as a superhero and I can do it all on my own, but then I realize that I quickly can't. But when you do it with other people, you really amplify the effects of good work. Well, I love that. That's beautifully put. As you were speaking, what came to mind was your topic of burnout. Mm -hmm. And I know we ask a lot of brave individuals and people who are scared as well. We ask a lot of people right now, if you know better, you have to do better. But sometimes that's exhausting, right? It's like, <laughs> could somebody please help me out here? Right. You know, I can be the only person who's offended by what's going on. So for you, where do you go for comfort? Where do you go for respite when the world has you down? I mean, beyond going to your community on Facebook, right? I mean, that's what all of us do, right? We try to go find friendship online. Do you find solace in photography or family or, or what's your go-to when the world's got you down? There's a couple of places that really help me find the appropriate balance between all the different areas I try to engage in. I have a very strong relationship with my partner and my kids that is about as solid a foundation as I've ever had in my life. And so as long as that's good, nothing else can shake that. Work is good, which it wasn't always. And not talking about human resource. You know, I've been in human resources for 15 years now. And so like any career it has its ups and downs. And for the last six, it's been a really good ride with human resource. My boss, he lets me be. He hired me for a reason. He lets me do my job. And, you know, every so often we talk in just to make sure everybody's okay. <laughs> right. right. You know, do you yeah. need some help, Victoria? No, you got this. Okay. I'm going to focus on all of the other challenges that I have. So that's good to have that level of trust from somebody in a professional capacity. Yeah. Many people don't have that. 
you know, I've been working on this little project that is my book, right? Mm. And so I just had this fundamental belief that when work is bad and people are totally invested in work, their whole world falls apart, right? Because that's the only lens that they have. Or if they only see themselves as like a mom or a parent or a partner and that falls apart, they also lose their identity. So I think about my personality and a healthy personality. It's almost like a healthy portfolio. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got to be an employee, a member of your community, a partner in a relationship, maybe a parent, maybe a pet owner, right? Maybe a volunteer. And if you spread it out, you diminish the risk of one thing sucking Mm -hmm. and undermining you across the board. One of the things in my portfolio is I'm someone who's politically active and another piece is that I love the world of human resources. That just knocked out (laughs) like 30% of all the things I'm passionate about because both are kind of a mess. And so this idea of burnout is something I struggle with as well, because if I just think about politics for more than five minutes, it just tears me under, Victoria. Right. No, I, I agree. And Luckily, the photography is also another component that really helps to center me in a good way. So tell me about that, because I love the idea that you're trying to tell stories about New York that maybe aren't being told Mm -hmm. or telling stories in a different way or showing us things that maybe we should see, but we don't. So what's photography like for you? What does it mean for you? What are you doing with it? So primarily, it's me literally walking around with my camera. I carry it with me everywhere. And luckily, I have the appropriate bag to not break my back. Uh, You are an HR professional. You know know. your ergonomics. Backpacks and back support are important. (laughs) And so when I see something that I like, I take a picture of it. Usually murals or architecture or things like that. You know, being in New York, there's always something to see and capture. But with that, there's 9 million people here. You know, 2 million people commute here every day. And so there's always a story as it relates to I'm on the train and I see something and I'm like, oh my God, can you believe that? And then marrying images to those stories really, in my mind, helps to bring a sense of humanity that maybe people gloss over when they do think about New York City because it is such a huge place. It is such a dense city that sometimes people have these very concrete stereotypes. And so for me, as somebody who's lived here all my life, I see the noise and the congestion and the mass of humanity as a beautiful thing. And I can totally understand why people don't think that way at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, really? I don't, I don't know about that. Oh, but, but again, it's that dance, it's that rhythm, it's that heartbeat that I really enjoy. And I'm trying my best to take these still images and my words and put the two together in a way where people read and like, oh, wow, I never thought of New York in that fashion. Now I see it with different eyes. In that way, it reminds me a lot of your work in the world of human resources, at least in my community. You're trying to show us a truth Mm -hmm. in the world of HR. And I think in your photography, and I'd love to hear more about where people can find your photography as well and where they can support you. But in your world of photography, you're doing the same. You're trying to show us a different truth. So do you see parallels between the world of HR and photography or is this just me being heavy handed? No, absolutely. When HR in my mind works well, it's you're really connecting strategy and tactics to human potential. And when you get it right, and if you're in a position to see it, you see the effect on the employee side, on the leadership side, on the sales side, if you're fortunate enough. 
And so there's always that human element to what we do, even if we don't necessarily see it in the moment. The same thing with photography. You take a photo, you put that image in a way that hopefully highlights your vision of what that image represents. And when people look at it, they say, oh, wow, yeah, that speaks to me. So the two things are very parallel. Luckily for me, particularly over the last eight years or so of my HR career, I've worked for organizations that were relatively flat, either by nature of the fact that they were just on the small side or by design. And so when I created policies, I would get immediate feedback because <laughs> somebody would walk in my door, Victoria, that thing you just helped to implement, it sucked. Oh, <laughs> or, hey, thank you. no. Thank you, buddy. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. You took our feedback around something and you made it a policy Aww. that really makes the workforce a little bit better. And so, again, it's that human element in HR, and I try to apply that as well for my photography. So if people are interested in learning more about you, your work, your writing, let's make it easy for them to support you, to learn more. Where do they go? How do they find you? I have to update my website. Ah, you and every other guest yeah, on Let's Fix Work. Exactly. <laughs> Probably the best place to start is by going to my LinkedIn profile because LinkedIn, I did recently update my LinkedIn profile. So it, <laughs> it actually has all of my relevant information as it relates to my HR consultancy work, my photography work as well as my content writing work. Luckily, because I have an unusual name, if you Google Victorio Milian, all of my stuff pops up and no porn, which is lovely. <laughs> you may be the first guest who's actually been able to say that. Yeah, yeah. I, trust me, I check. Oh my God, that's funny. Well, one of the things we'll do is we'll put your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your Facebook, all of that in our show notes. But you've got a wonderful Patreon community that you've been building. So tell us a little bit about what Patreon is and what people can do there with you. Yeah. When I finally made the leap from being an amateur photographer to really taking it seriously, I knew one of the ways in which I had to show people that I was serious is by charging them money. And I learned that as an HR consultant, you offer people stuff for free. They don't really respect it, which is kind of odd. But once you attach a true price tag and you hold firm to whatever that fee is, people all of a sudden, they straighten up a little like, oh, OK. Yeah, he's the real deal. Right. Yeah. Wow. OK. Yeah, I may not have the money for you, but I, I will take it more seriously now. So again, when I wanted to make that leap, I knew I needed a foundation by which people who could support me on a regular basis could do so. And that would serve as a way for me to invest more in my photography skills, whether it's investing in equipment or investing in learning more about the craft of photography, so on and so forth, or just having a dedicated audience for my work. Yeah. And so I started a Patreon page and immediately people, mostly from the HR world, really came in and swooped in and started contributing. And you were one of my earliest supporters, which I thank you for. Since then, I've had a small core but dedicated group of people that see my photography first. They see my writing first and they give me feedback like, oh, Victoria, I really was moved by that photo essay you published last week or, you know, that picture you showed of whatever. I really like it. Do you have one? I want to put it on my wall. And that kind of has led to opportunities to do prints for people and, and see their work in offices and in other spaces, which is wonderful. And it's just really nice to know that there are people out there that 
aren't demanding kind of a tit for tat every time they give you a dollar or five. Yeah, that's really lovely. Well, it was my joy to be an early member of the community and someone who's rejoining Patreon to support you. I just love your work. I love your photography. And you have taken many beautiful shots of people in our community. You've done headshots. Your photos are up on Twitter. So I think there's a really neat way to pay it forward in our HR community by supporting one another and supporting our endeavors so that we're not all hyper-focused on work all the time. Exactly. And we actually have a creative outlet. So, you know, (laughs) you're a fully-fledged human being. You love photography. You love your family. And it definitely shows on that page. Thank you. Victoria, it's been a real joy to have you as a guest on Let's Fix Work. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here, Lori. Every time you come to New York, I think we try to get together if for no other reason than to have coffee and chat about catching up with each other. So <laughs> It's good that it happened. Yeah, I know. Thank you again for all the opportunities and for ooh, almost a decade of friendship. Yes, you're such a dear person in my life. Thank you again. And also for all the Christmas cards that, you know, the oh. holiday cards are always a joy. Oh, those are, those are great. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thanks again for being a guest today. Uh, thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Victorio Milian. If you're interested in any of the tools, tips, resources, links, links to articles that we talked about today, you can go to laurierudiman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 71, or even just go to laurierudiman.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find the episode. Stick in your email address. I'm not going to sell it. I'm not going to spam you. And you'll get a wonderful PDF takeaway. Let's Fix Work was recorded live in New York City at Hangar Studios and produced by Danny Osmit at Emerald City Productions. If you like what you hear, I would love to hear your feedback at hello at letsfixwork.com. I would also welcome a review on your favorite podcast player, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, any sort of Google platform. I'm down with that, please. We would love to get a rating and a review. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes. 